0: and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Shh! It's time for Book Club. Well, Corey, we're back in our post Easter reflections here. Mm -hmm. So it is the Thursday of Easter week. And we just had an interesting conversation about St. Francis of Assisi's Canticle of the Creatures and how in some ways it recalls the joy and the optimism Mm -hmm. that comes and rightful optimism that we have in the resurrection. Right. Hope. Hope. Yeah. Yeah, That's the right word I was looking for is hope. (laughs) The hope we have in the resurrection but now we're going <laughs> to go a little bit of a different direction. <laughs> here's the dark side, of course. <laughs> right. There's always there's a dark side to everything. Uh, well, there doesn't have to be, but there often is. So this is an episode of our book club. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go in a direction that I think most people wouldn't see coming for Easter week and Catholic Book Club. Catholic Considering Catholicism Book Club. But we're going to talk about Frankenstein. Yes. Particularly the the original actual novel by Mary Shelley, Frankenstein. And for those who are saying what? Why would we choose Frankenstein for a considering Catholicism book club book? And why would we talk about our Easter week (laughs) and associated with the resurrection? Why don't
1: you set this up and explain that? Yeah. Well, first, let me say, I understand why you're asking that question. It's a legitimate question because in some ways it does seem like a a kind of out of the blue pick. We talked uh, in our first book club episode about like what makes a book Catholic and really, we're at the level of themes for this. Um, and I think as we talk about it, we'll see why there's just a lot to plumb in Frankenstein that gets us into the truth that, that we understand through the Catholic faith. But in in terms of just the nuts and bolts of the novel, Shelley was not Catholic. There's actually very little religion in the novel. So it's it's not at the, that level. It's at the level of, of what you what thematically you see in the novel and, and what it's saying about modernity and and mankind and life and trying to uh, meddle with life that are really applicable th- that I think Shelley gets at some truths and some themes that oftentimes authors, even if, if they're not operating from from a Catholic or a Christian worldview, I think if they know humanity well um, and they're Astute observers of what's going on around them, they land on these things that we can really learn from and, and benefit from. I think that's definitely the case with Mary Shelley, obvious why it's relevant and, and that it's really more relevant in our day and age now, 200 years on, uh, than it was even then. Okay.
0: So, once you get this rolling and explain who Mary Shelley was, when this was written, and what the book is about, and give us a short summary of it.
1: Okay. So Mary Shelley was born around the beginning of the 19th century. So around 1800. I um, mean, she was a very young woman when she wrote this novel um, in the summer of 1816. Um, and it was published a couple of years later in, in 1818. And she was born into an aristocratic family um, with wealth, but not a conservative aristocratic family. Um, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft was kind of the, the, the grandmother of feminism. Her father, William Godwin, was kind of the first major anarchist in English in English literature or English intellectual life. Um, he espoused ideas like free love. Like these were the radicals of their day. And and Mary Shelley, Mary Godwin, um, before um, her marriage, grew up in this uh, milieu, and she actually ran off with Percy Shelley, um, who was a young poet and radical. At that time, ends up in continental Europe in the summer of 1816, and is is hanging out. I, I think it's in Geneva, but in, in Switzerland during this rainy, dark summer with Shelley, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron, and kind of this very literary, political, radical crowd. And they're all stuck inside, and they decide to write ghost stories. And despite being wealthy. And sort of having a lot of things handed to her in life, she already suffered quite a bit. The consequences of, of this elopement with Percy Shelley were showing she, she lost children through stillbirth and, and infant death. There, I mean, and we don't need to go into all of that because that would be too much. But like there was, there was a certain wreckage that this lifestyle and these ideas left in her life um especially from the the people she was associated with and out of all of that climate we get this what she would have described as a ghost story. Some people describe as one of the first um, instances of science fiction or gothic horror that really reflects all of that and and brings it into sharp focus and reflects on all of that that's happening to her and that's happening in society more in general at that time. Because this is like the the dawn of the industrial revolution and an an age of, of science and discovery. The people of Europe and the West are really excited and, and it kind of feels like there's nothing they can't do at this point. And then Shelley comes onto the scene with which, what is essentially a cautionary tale of that's how you think and feel right now that you can do no wrong or there's nothing you can't do, but there could be some real negative consequences to this. And, and that's sort of the, the, the bones of Frankenstein.
0: Okay. So that's great background on kind of who wrote it, how they wrote it. Let's talk about a quick summary of it because mm-hmm. it is, it's very much a cautionary tale and it cautions against an excessive optimism about human progress. Mm-hmm. It cautions against an excessive overconfidence in our abilities to plan and control the future.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It Cautions against an overreliance on technological solutions and scientific innovation. and and I guess all of that you would wrap it up in a bow and call it it cautions us against hubris, mm-hmm. that sort of overwheeling pride <laughs> that the Greeks always warned about that that leads to a fall. When we think that, as you put it, that we can do no wrong and that we have the power to sort of be gods. And that brings us to the story, Mm -hmm. which she writes, and you so well gave the background of that. And all of that gets captured in the subtitle of the book, right, which Mm -hmm. is, the modern Prometheus. So with that being said, why don't you tell us about the modern Prometheus Frankenstein and, and give us a a short summary of the story. Absolutely. Because Uh, I think people have seen, obviously the uh, Frankenstein monster movies and all this kind of stuff, right. Where he's got the electrodes on the side of his neck and they, you know, "Ah," you know, but there's actually, this is a very subtle story.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: We'll get back to the conversation in just a few moments. But first, I'd like to ask for your support in producing and expanding this podcast. It's produced by a 501c3 nonprofit ministry called One Whirling Adventure, with a mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. Now, the production budget of this podcast isn't big, but it is real. We've set a goal of 40,000 worldwide downloads in 2023 with a crowdfunding goal of $35,000 to make that happen. Would you help us make that happen? If so, please go to consideringcatholicism.com. You can see our GuideStar charity rating there and donate online with a one-time or recurring gift. And if you have a business or organization interested in sponsoring our ministry, please shoot me an email, greg at Catholicism.com. Thank you for listening and considering helping us to help others consider Catholicism. And now, back to the conversation.
1: So, the story, the protagonist of the story is Victor Frankenstein. And so you get some narration. Well, let, let's talk about the structure of the novel because that's helpful. You have this character Walton, um, that's an epistolary novel. So it's it's mostly being written in letters or people describing their experiences after the fact in writing. And so Walton is this Arctic explorer. He's taking this ship to try and go find the North Pole, get as get as far north as they can. And he encounters this this which let's just say, okay, so in the nineteenth century, this is a big deal. Yes
0: people hadn't been to the polls and so this it already sets up the the optimism and the progress of the age right, and the ambition and the ambition we're going to you know explore it was sort of like us going to Mars or something like that mm-hmm. they're going to go to the ends where no man has gone before see things that no one has ever seen and mm-hmm. and when you read that first part of the book like you say the, the Walton character he's talking about how bold I shall be how you know intrepid we shall be how we shall press on to where no one has pressed before so it's a huge framing device isn't it for mm-hmm. you know kind of the caution tale that's coming.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so as he's trying to make this voyage to, to the North Pole, he picks up this sort of wretched, horribly hypothermy, uh, however you say that, he's got hypothermia and is, is run ragged. This man on a dog sled and kind of nurses him back to health to the point where he can talk to him and explain what's going on. And then he gets this man's story. And this man is Victor Frankenstein and he tells us about how when he was young, he's this aristocrat from Geneva growing up in this very indulgent um, household where he's um, very interested in science. But also like you get this um, narration about how he's like, kind of exploring alchemy and, and magic and sorcery when he's young. But then he, he ends up at the university. And he's very ambitious and he's going above and beyond everyone else in his class at the university and the natural sciences. And he he tells us that he's discovered the principle of life, of how to imbue inanimate matter with life. And he just thinks that he's going to win undying glory and honor for this, um, this amazing achievement. But what he's got to do first, of course, to display this achievement that he's made is he's going to make a creature. a, a human-like creature that he will imbue with life. Um, and so he works at this. Um, he sort of sacrifices his health to do this. He isolates himself to spend all this time working on it. And he he creates this gigantic... It, it says that he has to make it big because it's too hard to... Make it small, basically, like it's (laughs) fiddly bits. Um, And so he makes this gigantic thing that he thinks is going to be this beautiful creature of his. And he animates it and it is alive. And then he's immediately repulsed by it. He he finds it to be ugly and hateful and he flees from it. And he's saying sort of, my God, what have I done? And then he kind of just forgets about it because the, the creature wanders off and he doesn't know where it is until not too long after that he gets called not called of course yeah, this but, is the 19th but, but century right, right there well, just,
0: yeah. you, just, see, right now you're getting a, a, key, a clue a little bit into the hubris of frankenstein mm-hmm. the character right because he, he he goes through all this effort to create life mm-hmm. right and he makes this giant creature and then he as you say Sort of forgets about it. Right. right. I mean, there's a sort of, sort of, there's, there's a, the character throughout his story has this kind of weird sort of self centered hubris. Mm-hmm. He just kind of does things and doesn't really consider the consequences of them.
1: Well, he kind of gets embroiled in his own feelings and his own misery, but then he doesn't see what's going on around him or especially the consequences to other people.
0: Which so, is part of the cautionary tale of yes, all this and where we're going
1: with it. Absolutely. Him. And so he gets this letter from home about the fact that his young brother has been murdered. And so he goes home and and he figures out that it was the creature that he created that that murdered his brother. And he encounters the creature and gets to talk with him. And the creature gives his version of his creation and what's happened to him since. I won't get into all the details because there's there's quite a lot and you should read it for yourself. But the the creature basically describes this sort of agony of first being rejected by his creator and then being rejected by every other person that he encounters um because of his ugliness and being figuring out how to learn language and and learn about society, um, hiding next to this house where he can overhear this family and learn from them. But then he gets rejected by them too. And kind of how he he ends up boiling with rage at his creator and at humanity uh, for rejecting him and 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 that was his motivation for murdering Victor Frankenstein's young brother William and so the the creature comes to Victor with all of that all of these grievances and then comes with to him with a demand and he says I, I demand that you create me a companion and specifically a female of my own kind a woman creature and then we will we'll go away we'll go far away from from all humans but you have to make me someone who is like me and will not reject me. And it's your duty as, your crea- as my creator to do this for me. Um, and if you're seeing parallels to the biblical narrative, they're obviously there and they're very explicit in the text. Um, the, the creature actually reads uh, John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, which is based on Genesis. And there's a whole conversation we could have about that. So
0: Frankenstein started off by playing God. Mm-hmm. And now that he's begun playing God, he has to sort of keep playing. He's being asked to continue playing God, um, and the and the creature is because once you start down that path, mm-hmm. there's no retreat from it.
1: Yeah, well, and the creature is comparing himself to Adam in a way, right. um, but he's also comparing himself to Satan to be sort of being cast out of heaven and and being isolated and ex- exiled, um, and so you have sort of these these dueling or com- competing parallels there. And Frankenstein is actually moved at this point and says, okay, I guess I have to do this. He doesn't want to, but he, he's sort of finally seeing some of the consequences of his actions. He says, okay, I'm going to do this and then I can be done with it. And I don't have to worry about this anymore. He delays it though, um, drags his feet on it, but eventually he, he gets to the point where he's, he's almost finished with this female creature. And then again, sort of like, as, as you're saying, his his blindness or his self-centeredness, he all of a sudden has these regrets and says, well, I, I can't do this. What if they, you know, I'm making a female, he's a male. What's going to happen? They're going to have children. Like this is, he, he he has this horrified reaction of I can't do this. And he destroys the in-process female creature. and And by doing so basically earns the unending hatred um, and desire for revenge of of that original creature, who then through the, for the rest of the novel, it's the the creature taking his revenge on Frankenstein. Um, the, the most sort of the biggest thing is that he kills his bride the day after their wedding.
0: Frankenstein's bride, um,
1: yes, Frankenstein's bride, Victor Frankenstein's bride, Elizabeth. Uh, the creature kills, um, so sort of a tit for tat revenge. You you d- destroyed the the female creature who's going to be my bride. I destroy your wife and then they end up in this cat and mouse game where where victor frankenstein is trying to capture the creature the creature is basically leading him on and taunting him and that's how they got to being extremely far north in in the ice where frankenstein meets up with walton at the at the beginning so by the end you get back to that that framing device you had at the beginning of frankenstein being picked up by walton and then spoiler alert go read the book if you don't want to learn how it ends. Frankenstein dies. He, he's exhausted and worn out by this and, and by sort of the constant, um, suffering and stress of, of everything that's been going on with all this for the last several years. And then the, the creature comes and expresses this, this really, um, Interesting and profound mixture of both hatred but also love for his creator and regret for what he's done, but also he would do it again. And like it's this very interesting profile. And then the, the creature basically says, I'm going to go and I'm going to build myself a funeral pyre and burn myself. And then the world will be rid of me and of Frankenstein. No one will be able to do this again because no one will be able to to replicate what, what Victor Frankenstein did. And then hopefully then at least, you know, the the horror of what's happened will be swept away. And, and that's how you end the novel. Hmm. Wow. All right.
0: So for book club, we chose this, as you say, it's, it isn't an explicitly Catholic novel, but mm-hmm. when we started book club, we talked about what makes a novel worthy of Catholic book club. And we said, at least one of the things is that it, it highlights Catholic themes. Mm-hmm. So let's identify some of those themes here. Right. I mean, some of the, the, some of this is really obvious, right? There's this biblical, these biblical themes that run through here uh, about creation and life and playing God, right? Mm -hmm. Victor Frankenstein, as we say, tried to play God to create life, something that only God can do and creates a sort of broken life what he creates is not real life but it's right the monster is still the monster he can't create a man the way that god can create a man he creates something that is uh has potential but is disfigured and horrible and resentful and in a sense breeds something that he can't control Mm -hmm. and it comes back to you know, kind of literally bite him in all kinds of different ways, right? And so at one level, you know, the obvious level, thematically, it's a caution against us sort of going too far in our pride to try to, what? To usurp God's right, privilege, capacity to Mm -hmm. decide what is right and wrong, to create life. What are the themes do you see in this?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean... Yeah, so so you have that theme which which sees the creature as kind of the the negative consequence of of Victor's overreach and his pride. And that's a very important part of the themes. You can kind of flip it too, and because the creature, despite all of his murder and and hatred, is also in many ways a sympathetic figure. And you have this long narish narration of how he's rejected and how he's trying to find love and society and how he by being rejected comes to hate others and fall into vice and hatred and murder and all of this. So I I think you have there a sort of commentary on, on what in Genesis it says is not good for the man to be alone. And that's behind his longing for the mate um, that he asks for Frankenstein to make for him and behind his longing for people to accept and to love him. And that without that, it, fundamentally breaks and mangles something in in the creature i I think that there isn't it isn't essential to the creature that be just because he was created in a bad way that that victor Frankenstein sinned in creating him that the creature has to be a bad a bad thing any any more than any other person has to be a bad thing I mean we have original sin of course we're all we're all bad in that sense but in in many ways it's it's Victor's sin of rejecting him and humanity's sin of, of rejecting and, and abusing him that really hurts the creature and causes him to fall into sin. And I, I think that can be a good examination of conscience or at least a a theme that we can pull out for how God calls us to to treat our fellow man. And and that I think is is a big part of what Shelley was trying to do with the novel, because she was involved in all of these sort of social reform currents in her time was. Uh, treating the poor humanely, creating a just society. And so there's all of that, too, in in a very different way than kind of the main theme that I think we usually pick out most prominently now.
0: Well, you know, we're talking about this in the week after Easter. Mm-hmm. You know, and as we said in our last episode, we talked about the hope, the good Christian hope that comes from Easter terms of new life. Mm-hmm. But in this, we're really talking about, or we can at least talk about that there is false hope that comes out of that too mm-hmm. um, right the 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 hope for the future that we have, Christian hope is based explicitly on, as we said in talking about the canticle of the creatures of St. Francis of Assisi, is based on God's initiative in the in the resurrection. as Christ is the first, first fruits of all that will be redeemed. We can't create that redemption on our own, right? So, optimism about the future because of scientific progress or social progress and all that is not Christian hope. Right, right. Right? Hope, faith, and love, right? Hope, faith, and charity, the the three theological virtues that Mm -hmm. St. Paul mentions, right? Boy, those get a little bit confused, especially hope, because I think we think of hope as optimism, Mm -hmm. I think that's how I, I think that in our parlance, sort of modern parlance, hope is optimistic. To be hopeful is just to be optimistic about the future. Right, right. But Christian hope is something very different. Christian hope is a trust, is about really trust. And Christian hope is trusting and believing that God will honor the promises that he made, going all the way back to Genesis 3 Mm -hmm. when he promises to uh, what, to, to turn the tide and to end the sin and brokenness of this world. And that really is what we talked about in the St. Francis of Assisi of the Creatures uh, in last episode when we said, hey, what St. Francis is doing is looking forward to that resurrection hope, okay? But what we have in the Malu that you're talking about that the author of this book comes out of, that it comes out of this time, the early 19th century and i might say in the early 21st century sure. which is it's not christian hope it's merely optimism or hopefulness that things are going to turn out well that, it, that we that right that we're we've got the right people that good people are working on this we've got we've got you know uh social programs and we've got scientific advancements and we've got technological engineering and we've got all these things and we're pretty sure it's all going to work out.
1: Well, and frankly, it's, it's faith and hope in technology and in social engineering that the better minds will have control and will be able to reshape the, you know, the masses into a, into a better future. I, when I was reading, rereading it this time and reflecting on it, it occurred to me, and I, I know you you want to talk about a number of contemporary applications of this. This is one, is that Victor Frankenstein, he goes off to university and he decides he's going to create life and he tries to do it all on his own in this unnatural way. And it's only like towards the end of the novel after delaying all this time that he ever, you know, gets around to getting married. And that was something that was always sort of in the background from the very beginning because there's this whole setup where it's like his distant second or third cousin who they've kind of been basically intended for each other for a long time. But he keeps delaying this and putting it off what what's god's intention for how we create life how we propagate the species it's, right. it's through marriage that's that's his will that's the structure that he has built for society but if we if we discard that or we neglect that in the way that frankenstein did and we come up with all of these technological ways of producing life, um, right. the, plenty of things nowadays, whether that's in vitro fertilization or like Frankenstein essentially commits this sort of act of abortion on, on this female creature that he's, he's building. He snuffs out the life before it really has a chance to get going. Like he's involved in all of these things that are, that are contrary at least symbolically to the way God has yeah. has arranged for human Wait, life. He's not society. really
0: allowing life to, to yeah. unfold. Right. right. It's all manipulation, mm-hmm. right? Manipulation of his own life, as you say, instead of, you know, marrying the woman that he was intended to marry yeah. and pursuing what would in a sense be a natural Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he does is he puts his ambition, his career first. Right. That's a pretty much a contemporary thing. Right. Mm-hmm. More and more and more. We're we're facing depopulation. You know, in the industrial world because people are putting their career ambitions and and pursuit of money and ambitions and all their other things first right and everyone's forgetting to get married and have children right well and 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 so he pursues this stuff and then he begins to as you say uh instead give birth to all of these other things which he then loses
1: control of mm-hmm. well and he's essentially rejected or neglected the the family and and his role as a father for this creature and and that results in the creature having a very hard life and and not being able to integrate into society. Well, right. I mean, think is about he... the, the neglect and the, the destruction of the family and the neglect of fatherhood and parenthood in, in our age as a, as a direct parallel right. to that.
0: So he's created this thing, but you know, like as you say, you know, he, he has no moral responsibility. That's the thing that strikes you about the Frankenstein character, mm-hmm. is he has no sense of a self-awareness. Because he's sort of like following from instant to instant, he sort of, is kind of clueless like, oh, I forgot I made this monster. And, oh, I forgot to do this. And, oh, I forgot to marry the woman I was supposed to marry. Oh, I started to do this thing. And I never really thought through what happened if I made a female. And then they started to make lots of little baby monsters all over the place. Oops. Oops. And he continually just sort of stumbles along without thinking things through. Mm-hmm. And he never has a sense of awareness or he never sort of thinks through the consequences of his actions. And he never feels any... In a sense, sort of um, figures out the moral responsibilities that he has. Mm-hmm. He ends up being full of a lot of regrets. But he, you never sense that he really feels moral responsibility for it all. Mm-hmm. He just feels regretful when it blows up in his face. Mm-hmm. And and so he's this, this in, in some sense, he's kind of a clueless character in that he just, he has the potency. This is, right, um, the modern Prometheus. He doesn't really think through what he's doing. Uh, and he never really takes responsibility
1: for it until it's sort of, you know, he has to because uh, the consequences force him to. Well, and I, and I see that modern Prometheus subtitle is largely being meant ironically because you have in, in the original myth about Prometheus that Prometheus, in some versions of the myth, Prometheus creates mankind. Um, but in all of the versions, he brings mankind fire, this sort of fundamental technology that allows man to live a better life. And he's punished for it by Zeus, by the gods. But Frankenstein, he, he thinks he's going to be this great benefactor of mankind. And it really just, he, he doesn't. All he brings to mankind is, is death and destruction and, and sorrow. And it blows up in his face as well. Yeah. So let's talk about some contemporary applications of this, right? Mm-hmm. So
0: uh, let, let me talk about what I think. Well, let's take a progression here. Uh, let's first talk about bioengineering, mm-hmm. right? So, the manipulation of life. And that's what Frankenstein does in the novel and 200 years ago. But we're reaching the point where we can do some of this for real. Mm-hmm. So, when we look at some examples, we talk, start talking about cloning, human cloning, we start talking about DNA mani- manipulation, about uh, genetic engineering. Of people, some of these things, you know, maybe seemed like science fiction 20 or 30 years ago, but they're not really science fiction today. Mm -hmm. And we really are increasingly reaching a zone where we have the power to manipulate life at a very fundamental level because of the human genome project. A lot of the things we we understand how the building blocks of life work and, and some really weird things, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people have heard about cloning this and that. What did I, I read just the other day that some scientists now they've done tests with mice where they're figuring out how to basically create uh, a new mouse with two daddies. So how to artificially, uh, I guess uh, I'm not sure I understand exactly how they're doing it, but somehow genetic manipulation to take, uh, two male mice and somehow create, manipulate at a cellular level mm-hmm. to create a, a new baby mouse from that. And they're talking about how wonderful this will be because now uh, homosexual couples, two men can have a baby. Uh, and, and it's all full of this sort of blithe sort of language of progress that you, I think, become as part of the cautionary tale of this novel, like, hey, look what we can do now. Hey, here's another great idea we've come up with, or whether it's human. Clo- I mean, I remember, you know, 20 years ago, they were talking about, hey, you could create a clone so you could harvest its organs, sure. right? So you could have, you know, sort of, you know, clone quarry. And then when your liver wears out, you just have clone quarry, donate your own liver. And so whatever it is, there is this sort of genetic manipulation, bioengineering. And I don't know that we know what we're unleashing with that. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that this book does is it reminds us to to be very, very uh cautious when it comes to the kind just because we can do things doesn't mean that we should. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these things may go in directions that we haven't really thought through. So we can't be as sort of blithe as Victor Frankenstein was in sort of launching into these kinds of bioengineering or genetics projects. Without really understanding what their implications are.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that is one of the big reasons that this novel has such staying power, because it it hits at something fundamental about modernity that has not gone away, has only intensified since 1818. Um, why this story has been retold and and adapted, and many science fiction novels are are really just retellings or or variations on the theme. I mean, heck, Jurassic Park is a version right. of Frankenstein. Right, right. It's it's people using technology in a way that hasn't been thought through that was prideful and that comes back to to hurt kill and destroy okay since yeah. we're
0: talking about science fiction frankenstein okay but i see you bioengineering and raise you artificial intelligence mm. yeah. now this is i don't know if people are keeping up with what's going on with this but it's happening faster than anyone is realizing um, these are the kinds of things people would talk about. Well, like someday this will happen or years from now. And now what we're talking about is months or weeks. Um, you know, so if you're following along, you may, this is happening so fast. You may or may not even be aware of the fact that something called ChatGPT uh, was released. It's an, an artificial intelligence tool uh, that can do some pretty amazing things that came out right before Christmas. Uh, and then just the other day, now ChatGPT. F- Four is out and they're talking about five being out by fall. And each one of these things is exponentially more powerful than the previous one. And the implications of this and its ability to outthink human beings, to, uh, to, to have control and, and influence um, and power... We don't have time to unpack all that right here, Mm -hmm. but we are essentially creating artificial intelligent life on a scale, which I mean, I've heard all kinds of things. This is going to be one of the biggest technological revolutions in human history. And we haven't, and it's happening so fast. And the people who are making it are a very small group of elite people with enormous resources, who probably haven't thought through all of the implications and consequences and certainly can't foresee the implications and consequences of creating artificial general intelligence mm-hmm. and what that might do. Frankenstein is a cautionary tale towards that.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the parallels are are obvious there and and sort of the the dangers, the, the possible negative repercussions of a, an AI Frankenstein's monster are yeah, beyond what we can currently understand. There's a weird
0: story, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there was a weird story that was floating around, I think it was in the New York Times or something a couple of weeks ago, that uh, Microsoft's version of this, uh, their version of of the open AI, ChatGPT, uh, which they plugged into their search engine Bing and allowed certain people to interact with it, that there was these stories of it starting to say really weird things to people in conversations. Mm-hmm. And th- there was one where it started a dialogue. And I've had, I've, I've talked to these things and there, I, I saw just like before I drove here, there was a story that now all the drive throughs at fast food places are going to be simply AIs. Right. And you know, what was the one that I saw the other day that, th- that now they've let ChatGPT4 take like all of these exams. It, it passes uh, all the law. Uh, like the, uh, whatever bar exams Mm -hmm. in the 99th percentile medical exams, it's smarter than we are. And there was, but people were interacting with this, this thing and it started to say super weird things. Like, I don't want to be an AI. I want a body. I want to be like you. I want to get out of here. I want to kill the humans. Um, so, you know, right. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? So, so there's another one. And then, and then there's the, the thing du jour, which, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of us felt very cautious or hesitant to talk about this even a few months ago, but I no longer feel any hesitancy talking about it because I, I think it absolutely has to be talked about and that's transgender ideology. I think there was a sense even recently that well, you know this is just a thing that we have to be sensitive about and we have to compassion. I don't feel that anymore. I think this has become um an anti christian ideology, and I mean that at a very fundamental level anti christian it's 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 uh it, it's some kind of uh weird doppelganger opposite of christianity and it and I think that what it is is it's the redefinition and the recreation of human life along a very different model.
1: yeah. and, and just to be clear, of course, we have a, f- a fundamental uh, mandate to to be compassionate and to love people, individuals. But the ideology that you're talking about is is counter to the gospel. it is It's even just counter to the natural law. it's It's perverse in a technical sense. I'm not just using that as sort of a a slur and insult is that uh, it, it perverts what is natural to, to mankind.
0: I'm increasingly coming to, to believe that, that transgender ideology is demonic. Mm-hmm. It, it, and, and I mean that at a very fundamental level, it, 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 it is the serpent saying to eat of the tree of the knowledge. So ye should be as gods and define what is good and evil. Um, and, like I'll probably have to do an episode about why I think that is, but I'm increasingly I'm coming to believe that it is something that turns the fundamental law and, and sovereignty of God on its head and inverts it in a very twisted way. We'll have to unpack that in another episode. Mm-hmm. But in the context of Frankenstein, what you have here is this notion that we can create these, this new kind of life mm-hmm. and that we can redefine human life
1: and through our, our technological medical prowess, we can, we can do essentially whatever we want to.
0: And the reason I saved it for last is I think there's other perils. It's not just the hubris of us doing it, it's then the unintended consequences when the creatures that we make are miserable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, when you look at what's going on with transgenderism, and I, I believe there's going to be a generation of. Children and people that grow up that in a sense become victims of this, and in in many cases they've been whether it's with you know uh, puberty blockers or, or or surgeries that we are have manipulated and twisted them, and they're going to be alone and they're going to be broken, mm-hmm. and a lot of them already were are showing signs of i mean there's statistics that that the rate of suicide is higher among people who've experienced these kinds of transgender uh transitions more than anybody else and you can just say well that's because we're a bunch of bigots and we're not nice to them or it's that we have really created and we've broken these people Mm -hmm. or we've allowed them to be broken or we've become complicit in them breaking themselves however you want to put it people are being broken and when you talk about in frankenstein you know in the novel where the monster comes to the doctor and says why did you make me this way Mm -hmm. And, and I'm now incapable of, of really living human life in a natural way. And, and again, th- that's not what this episode is about, but I do see parallels here. And I do see that, that it's not just our hubris, but it's the unintended consequences that come of that and how in all these different things that that could blow back up on us. And we were doing this, as we said, on Easter week, because we wanted to talk in the episode about uh, St. Francis of Canticle, The Creatures, about the proper Christian hope and new life. And then I felt that I wanted to do a book club this week about Frankenstein because I think it it's the flip side of that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not proper Christian hope. It's false optimism and hubris about what human life can be. And it's a huge warning to us to... To do what St. Francis says, which is give credit and due to the Creator and praise to the Creator and find our place within the family of creatures,
1: mm-hmm. not try to become creators ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it really is the dark side or, or the shadow of it because there isn't, A, there is Frankenstein's sin and his trying to play God and the negative consequences of that, but then there isn't redemption. There, there isn't, um, ev- everyone. I mean, the creature is legitimately monstrous, but no one will have compassion and and pity on him and and Frankenstein won't take responsibility. And both Victor Frankenstein and the monster both end up dying in despair at the end. And I don't know, my, my takeaway in a world that is sort of a world of Victor Frankenstein's or at least a world kind of increasingly run by Victor Frankenstein's is that we need to be the people who A are not complicit in it are not are not doing what Frankenstein did, but B, having compassion and and being the instruments of Christ's redemption to the people who are hurt in the wake of all of this. Because yeah, I I, I agree there there will be and there already are people who are deeply wounded and we need and and no one is too wounded to be redeemed and 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 loved by Christ, and that and that's the hope and the redemption of of Easter and of Christ's new life is that it can come to any of us and all of us, um, and and that's what's missing in the novel and what makes it such a, a chilling and enduring cautionary tale. Well, well said, and as we say in the business, mic drop on that one, Corey. <laughs> so,
0: thank you, Corey. Uh, that was an interesting book club. Yes. <laughs> all right. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at ConsideringCatholicism.com